would like to buy your own copy of Britney Spears' Blackout, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Natasha Lusky is a writer and filmmaker living in Chicago and author of our 33 and a third book, Britney Spears' Blackout. In part two of this episode, we discuss Spears' conservatorship and the public discussion around it, as well as disability rights in general. Then we'll look at stand culture and the influence of media on celebrity and vice versa, and how social media has changed since the album was released, looking at its impact on stars today like Billie Eilish and Taylor Swift, as well as what Britney Spears' Instagram looks like today. Take a listen. like vague memories of like essentially a lot of moments throughout Britney's career from the start because I was like I think 12 when Baby One More Time came out but I wasn't like as into music at that time because I was like quite young but like you know all of the major like the singles the videos the whole like the breakup the everything and I have to say Justin Timberlake's like musical response Crimea River like looking back on it so in, like and the video was just so incredibly vicious like obviously yeah. that did not help at all like what 2002, <laughs> 2003 or something like that so she's basically just like obviously been incredibly prominent in just sort of general pop culture I think it's like quite as you both said that like she's still like you know making music and, and singing it's really interesting also to actually see how media culture, fan culture has evolved and also not evolved in terms of how we treat, I would say, white young women who are making pop music and also about how they respond and have attempted to take na- like back their narratives to a limited extent. So I'm thinking of Taylor Swift, who obviously like really engages with her fans, you know, like is on Tumblr, you know, she's never officially acknowledged it. Billie Eilish. Could you maybe like talk about like how much you think the media and culture in general has changed or not changed in terms of like that? Yeah. So I think that it both has and hasn't changed as most things do. They do and they don't. I mean, I think it's it's worth saying that in the early days, in like 2005, 2006, Britney was really experimenting with, with talking to her fans directly in more or less a blog format. She's one of the few celebrities that had a blog in which she just sort of, I think it seemed like her label didn't really give a shit about what she was doing on there because she mostly complained about her label on, her, on this blog. And so I'm like, okay, they must not have really you know, no one, no one what to do with this. And then you also look at their, her short-lived reality show, Chaotic, in which she was vlogging, basically, right? Like, she filmed it basically entirely herself. I think there's, there's very few confessionals. You know, it feels very ahead of its time. It feels very like she's in trying to invite her fans in more or less directly. And of course, as she loses control of the narrative or as she becomes more of a target, for the mainstream media, we really lose that. But I think it's worth saying that she is attempting to do a lot of those things that we see other pop stars doing with their fans nowadays. But to sort of speak to what you're saying about if we see, you know, if we see young white women in pop being treated differently or that we've learned from our mistakes, I think... One thing that I think is interesting, and I think that this is true of 
Blackout as well, but this is something that Blackout kind of precipitated, which is that because the idea of having one's 15 minutes of fame or being quote unquote cancel culture or, you know, like the idea that becoming famous on the internet is a much more widespread thing. We have a lot more sympathy for famous people than I think we did back then. You know, the idea of feeling like you're being watched all the time is one that people who are on the internet and people who grew up on the internet feel a lot. And you notice that in a lot more pop is about that experience. And even in Billie Eilish's most recent album, you know, there are songs like NDA um, or Oxytocin or like that kind of thing where it's like, that's what the songs are about. Like back in when Max Martin was writing songs, you know, a label would be like, write about love, write about something people can relate to. But now that experience is itself very relatable for people or people want to hear that perspective from our pop stars. I mean, and at the same time, I think that sort of what I was saying before about the like toggling between agency and victimhood, I think has proven to be a really successful strategy for Taylor Swift in particular, in that I think she very cannily selects moments in which She's the one in control and she's the one that's being victimized. And I think that's something very unique to white women. Like white women can always claim victimhood when they're, they're trying to, you know, <laughs> escape some scrutiny in ways that can be accurate, but that can also be manipulative. But I think that with that in mind, I mean, I think Taylor Swift is an interesting example because she is very much an anomaly in the sort of industrialized pop music structure that I was talking about, right? Where she does write all of her own music, which is was not true of a lot of pop stars back then. But I think also you have TikTok becoming a much bigger platform, people sort of taking from SoundCloud and other, you know, people going viral before they sign to labels. And I think that gives people a little bit more agency before they start to, you know, sign their life away, right? Like, mm-hmm. because they're coming in with their own audience and they're So I think it it has changed a lot, but I think the narratives, like I think structurally in terms of like the way pop music works and the way that celebrity culture works, you know, the same narratives persist, right? Mm -hmm. It just takes different forms. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Just structurally, we still have, if not more, unyielding access to these people and they have to it feels like celebrities, I don't want to be like, oh, poor, poor, famous, rich people all the time. But yeah, like they don't, there is this idea that, you know, they don't always like own themselves, that they, the public owns them. I do think what has changed a little bit is that people saw what happened to Britney and then they see somebody like Billie Eilish, who is very young and has like success beyond any of our own realms of imagination. And I think there is this reticence of like, do not you know, like respect her boundaries, respect her cries for mental health because like this is the way we treated Britney. I don't know. I just think that there are some lessons learned at least coming from like- I do think so. And I think also there's sort of a recognition that being a public person is itself an art, right? Like being a celebrity, there is an art to that. I mean, it could be a Kardashian thing that's really brought that into the forefront. You know, there's a, I feel like back then there is a sense that there's the music, right? And then there's all this other bullshit that's all superficial. But I feel like in the rise of the social media age and the reality TV age and what have you, 
those two things are increasingly inseparable from each other. Like I could not imagine someone telling Brittany now, like don't write about your personal life when you're in the public eye. You know, now you have it the opposite way around where, you know, you have like Halsey complaining that she has to engineer a viral moment using her own personality in order to get her music to sell. Right. Right. That's totally, it's totally the opposite. Yeah. Like you get record labels now wanting to, as you said, like engineer authenticity from the music and like create this almost like digital fire, this digital intimacy between artist and public. Yeah. Which is why I'm always sort of skeptical about authenticity as a value in pop music and in music as a whole. Like there is this sense of privileging, you know, the real Britney, the authentic Britney. But this hunger for who is the real Britney, we want to hear from the real Britney, is itself what fueled the things that we've been complaining about this whole episode, right? In terms of the way that she is always giving us a little bit, but never enough to feel like we truly know her is a really great way to sell a pop star, right? Because that's what's going to keep us buying, you know, issues of people about her and new albums and all of that. But it does create this hunger that can destroy a person. And so something I really love about Blackout is that there is no real Britney, right? Mm. Like there's, you know, just like in Piece of Me, you can only have a piece of her, right? Even if everyone wants a piece of her that's all they can have there is no real Britney voice it's always being manipulated and pitched up and pitched down and I think interrupting that desire and drawing attention to that desire I think is something that that I think makes Blackout really unique and interesting and also you know something I love about it no absolutely I think it was relevant for Blackout and I think it is still unbearably relevant today, this this kind of speculation about into Britney's life and her mental state, you know, thinking, I'm talking specifically in the context of her conservatorship, you know, that's Certainly. Like the most modern iteration of people being deeply preoccupied with Britney Spears' personal life. And, you know, on the surface, it, it does seem like things have improved for her, you know, uh, her fans, I think, really organized around her getting being released from her conservatorship, which, you know, we were talking about this the other day, just like, I think what was also wild about that was just people realized how much more pervasive conservatorships are in the U.S. and like its relationship to disability in this really fucked up way. But yeah, I mean, do you think that the public perception for her has really changed in light of everything? Or do you think that the sort of underlying issues of surveillance, as you were talking about, particularly on Instagram, you know, the kind of fishbowl, I mean, she's doing that herself, like you, but, <laughs> but like the kind of like literal kind of magnifying glass on her uh, mind, yes. right? Like, do you think that those issues kind of still persist or is this something that, you know, we can only all wonder about. I think that when she was still in her conservatorship, what I noticed is like the entire internet banded together and was really like most of the internet I felt like was really sympathetic to her situation Mm -hmm. and really like tried to free her from this. But do you think that like since the conservatorship is done and now people are just looking at her Instagram and speculating about like her makeup choices and just the kind of, you know, you, you were talking about paparazzi. I think obviously like the 2022 iteration of that is just like, we're all paparazzi (laughs) in some way. So I guess I'm just wondering if, like, you think the kind of public obsessions about her have really changed. 
I think that in meaningful ways, it has really changed. I will say that just from my own personal experience, I pitched the book and started writing it before the New York Times documentary came out, which really exploded her, you know, interest in her conservatorship among non-fans, right? Like the Free Britney movement was in full swell in, you know, mid-2020, which is when I started writing. But, you know, when I would talk to people about writing a book about Britney Spears, people would be like, why? Like, what is there, what is interesting to say? Or like, what, you know, I mean, it's a silly question. I know, right? There's so many interesting things to say about her. Exactly. Or like the conversation around her was much less sophisticated than it has been. Like, I feel like my purpose in writing the book was to be like, Britney's actually great. Like, she's not adult, which, you know, is not news to us, but is unfortunately was news to a lot of people. And then after the conservatorship, especially after that documentary came out, when I talked to people about Britney, there were so many more people who were now more interested in her as a full person rather than as like an oddity of that, of the late aughts, right? So I think that that, you know, in my limited experience is a legitimate change, at least for her. And I think there's a sense that that's true for other stars of that time. Like, you know, Paris Hilton had a documentary that came out that also really recontextualized her, you know, bimbo persona, you know, among her traumas. And, you know, it, it sort of fleshed out why one would turn to that kind of persona. I mean, I had some problems with that documentary, but I think that was a really helpful tool for people to use to talk about these celebrities of full people. I don't think the same has happened to Lindsay Lohan yet, but I think there was a while where on Twitter, you know, people would share, I think there was a, there was a David Letterman interview where he made her cry and people were like, this is horrifying. Why did we not see this as horrifying back in the, back in the day? I do think that there is this structure of like, rise and fall and redemption that we love in terms of celebrity culture. And so in some way, I think, you know, I haven't fleshed this out in any big way, but there sort of needs to be that fall in order for them to be redeemed again. So again, I'm not sure exactly what this says about surveillance more broadly. I think also there was a part of me in reading sort of the glut of Britney coverage that came out after the documentary where I was like, okay, why are we turning to like any person that knew Britney at any point to give their two cents about the conservatorship, right? Like, why are we talking? Like, I was kind of shocked that the that the New Yorker, when they when Ronan Farrow and Gia Tolentino wrote about the conservatorship and they talked to Sam Letfi, her manager at the time, who's an incredibly controversial figure in the Britney fan community in terms of, for like a host of reasons that we probably don't have time to get into here. And I was like, why are we turning to him? Like, there's this sort of, you know, ability to look the other way and sort of just accept whoever's going to come forward. And at the same time, there are people who can sort of capitalize off of their association with her. And it's still happening. Like Kevin Federline, I think just got interviewed or just has some interview coming out about her. And, you know, Jamie Lynn is selling books. Like, and I think that's something as someone who's writing about Britney that I felt like I had to wrestle with morally where I'm like, I am kind of attaching myself as a parasite onto this woman. I hope it's for good. And I think it is. But I think that's something that ethically you have to think about 
if you're writing about someone who has already been subject to so much in the public eye. And I think it's probably true of most journalists, right? When you're taking someone's story and presenting it publicly, what that means and why you're doing it. And I think it's ultimately a good thing. But, you know, anyway, that was kind of a mess of an answer, but I hope that that was at least interesting in some way. No, it absolutely was. You're totally right. I feel like we especially build up women to make them fall. We do love a redemption story. I don't know. I feel like the redemption arc is like maybe slightly new chapter of the the plot line for people because I don't I don't yeah anyway that was just a half-baked idea never mind (laughs) but it's also like redeemed from what you know like I mean I mean I think there's this kind of conflation of like morally wrong things and like things that we don't like to see people do and like you know again I think this is a very fraught thing when it comes to like the concept of cancellation, which is a whole other thing that, right. you know, <laughs> which doesn't actually exist, which doesn't way. actually exist, but also, you know, has this cultural staying power that we don't seem to know what to do with. No, that's our moral panic today of cancel yeah. culture. It is really interesting. I think that part of the redemption arc is because of our own shame in terms of like, like, our self-reflexivity as a culture and thinking about the really messed up things that we did, like even with Paris Hilton, what happened to her is what we would now call a sex crime or just like revenge porn is a federal crime. And that's exactly what happened to her. She was, I think, a teenager. And just like that happening Mm -hmm. to an individual is so violating. But obviously we can only like think about it that way now. I mean, I think I will say that I'd like to caution the use of like we in terms of mm-hmm. here's what we did. I kind of think about it in terms of climate change and like the concept of carbon footprint, right? Yeah. Where it's like, yes, we should be thoughtful consumers about, you know, where we're getting cer- certain information, what, you know, narratives and stereotypes are they relying on? Like, has this happened before? That kind of media literacy is really important, I think. And I think that really became clear to me, especially with like the Amber Heard trial, not to get into that whole mess. We could go off. off, But like, I think, yeah, I think it was interesting to see how, you know, people who have seen those sort of narratives play out before had very different perspectives than especially younger people who Mm. hadn't seen this happen in real time. So I think that's one aspect of it. And I think that's something that we certainly should interrogate as media consumers. But I also think that, you know, certain actors, like at the time that Britney coverage was really getting out of control, people were still trying to understand, like, this was like the time, early time of clickbait before we had that term. And the kinds of outrage that people were stoking were among kind of like, were basically invoking the fears of pearl clutching white parents being like, you don't want, what example is this setting for your daughters, right? And like, that to me is the problem, right? Not that, you know, you clicked on a link to a Britney article in like 2005, right? And I think this happens all the time. Like this happened, especially with paparazzi where people, and I think I, I've done it too, where I've been like, oh yeah, the paparazzi were following Britney all the time. The paparazzi were mostly Latinx men who were the least you know, who are in the in a position of extreme vulnerability, who are trying to make money, who in many cases had like very, you know, 
kind relationships with Britney Spears, albeit there were times where she did not want to be photographed and that wasn't able to come through, right? But I think to blame them for the ills of the the industry as a whole is distracting and is this kind of the way that the system can continue to perpetrate itself, right? Like the anti-paparazzi laws that were enacted in 2010, 2013 in California, both protected celebrities, but also criminalized this profession and, you know, further criminalized a population that's already vulnerable. And so I think it's important to be precise about like who we're talking about in terms of who, what narratives are being perpetrated and by whom. Totally. I think that's a really vital thing to highlight in the conversation. I, I do think that like by saying you can like really flatten the conversation and you're right that there are people it is a collective, it's a structure that is pernicious, but then there are these like actors that do have actually real power and can make structural decisions of like, you know, if you're the CEO of TMZ, like that person or somebody who owns a jet, you know, like the stakes are a little bit high, yeah. like individual actions, like <laughs> actually do matter in that case. Like I know, like obviously the narrative around climate change is like, yeah, like the, the uh, carbon footprint is bullshit, but yeah, you know, Taylor Swift probably still shouldn't take a jet to like no, I was going to mention groceries. Oh my god, that what are what are we going to do with her right now? Now the Swifties are going to come for me. But um, (laughs) yeah, be careful. Been talking shit the whole time. But yeah, no, I know what you mean, and I think like there are certain people like Barbara Walters, or (laughs) I forget that one guy that was like talking about Britney Spears' tits on live television when she was like 17 do you remember this I don't know no. if I'm this was this guy who asked Brittany like we've got to talk about the thing that is on everyone's minds and she was like what and he was like your breasts and she was like I wish I could remember exactly where this was but you know what I mean like there are people like that that I think you know I think I think you're right I think there is this always this negotiation between individual power and culpability and structural thinking and how that can both, you know, I feel like any of these mechanisms can both allow for accountability and allow people to evade a culpability, such as the the mess that we live in. Let's end on a slightly more fun note. If you had to be on a desert island, are there particular Britney songs that you would pick? Shall we say between one and three songs? Oh, geez. Okay. I was going to be like, the entirety of Blackout is coming, but then obviously that's not, there's no skips on that album, I've got to say. Um, it is all killer, no filler. It is an incredible It is all album. killer, no filler. Yeah. But I think let's put Blackout aside because that much is obvious in terms of my own interests. I think I would take Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know off of Oops, I Did It Again. I think that's a very Ooh. beautiful song. I feel like it really demonstrates her her vocal range. Like, I feel like you can't listen to that song and be like, this woman can't sing. Like, that is insane to me that people can come away with that in spite of the evidence. I think Circus is a fraught album for me because it was one of my first Britney albums, but it's also like post-conservatorship. Like, I love the limelight, like where you're like, that can't be true. But I love Kill the Lights. I love Mannequin. I love Womanizer. If You Seek Amy is like a middle school classic. I feel like it came out right in the right time for middle schoolers where people could be like, did you get it? And none of us have had sex. So that's the barometer for whether or not we're mature. 
<laughs> oh my god! I'm sure it made some made for some very like spicy bat mitzvah moments. Yeah, for sure. Overprotected is an amazing song. I think that's my, been my favorite right now. Yeah. So I have a I have a double a question added on top of this one. Oh, okay, she's had ready. so many moments, so many different vibes. I'm wondering, like, is there like a favorite look or vibe that you have for Britney? I'm thinking like Comrade Britney, Double oh. Denim Britney, <laughs> or like showing off my clothes on this live story, Britney. In terms of looks, I've got to say that I really love Dump Him. I love the Dump Him outfit. I mm. think that that outfit is so camp and is so like it represents so many things that I love about Britney and that it's a ridiculous outfit objectively but the way that she embodies it with like the pigtails and the hat is you know I don't know it makes it work like she she is not afraid to be frivolous in a way that I think really comes through I mean I love the red latex jumpsuit it is insane to me that you could never listen to any of Britney's albums in full and you could at any one of us, or I mean, we have listened to Britney's albums in full, but mm. I could ask someone on the street to name three outfits that Britney has worn and they would be able to do it. Like it's, that's how iconic we're talking. She's a really excellent producer of images. Like it's a, com- a combination of style and videography and all of these other things. Kind of sounds like you're saying Britney invented the internet. You could make that argument. You really could. I think I think there's a way that she did. Yeah, let's 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 go for it. Let's <laughs> let's say it. I will also say that I think in her social media presence is I think really special and unique. I think, you know, there's a lot of controversy around her social media in terms of what kind of narrative is she presenting? Is she okay? Blah, blah, blah. But she has always been an exceptionally strange person and I love that for her. Like the tweet where she's like, does anyone think global warming is a good thing? I love Lady Gaga. I think she's a really interesting artist. Like, that's an incredible moment. Like, no one media trained that. You know what I mean? Like, I know. I think that kind of, those kinds of moments, you know, they could be used to make fun of her. I think people have a really genuine affection for that kind of thing, where it's like, it's coming from this kind of unfiltered perspective that she's taken nudes, posting them on Maine, twirling around with a like high angle camera in front of her. I mean, I'm now I'm just continuing to talk about more Britney moments I love, but I think to wrap up on Comradney, Comradney, <laughs> I think like what, I mean, she, she voted Republican in like 2000. I don't know how, how much we can, you know, what about her politics has or has not changed, but I think the like excitement that people had around Comrade Britney regardless of how, whether or not it accurately represents her politics sort of speaks to this incredible journey that she's been on in terms of like how this person who at one point represented the establishment, right? Like succeeding in the establishment as it exists, like being a beautiful, you know, white pop star that can do whatever she wants and has transformed into this figure that, marginalized people can align themselves with, like a disability rights advocate, someone who, you know, queer people see themselves in. I think that's a really powerful narrative. And I think it's one that Blackout helped construct in a way Mm -hmm. that I think makes the Comrade Britney stuff. I think that explains partially why we're so excited to see her, you know, say like redistribute all wealth or whatever. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's just the natural, logical conclusion of this yeah. culmination of her career. Yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. I am holding out for like Red Roses Britney, Comrade yeah. Britney. I hope she does redistribute her wealth. There's probably a lot there, but I just want to thank we'll you so yeah. much, Natasha. This of course, it was your time for the conversation. It's it was really a real amazing. pleasure to to talk all things Britney with you guys. Thanks again. Thank you.